0: I love the fact that when you develop really novel AI techniques, that you can apply it to so many different areas.
1: You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show where we learn about making machine learning models work in the real world. I'm your host, Lucas Biewald. Richard Socher was the chief scientist at Salesforce, where he oversaw development initiatives like Einstein's Cloud AI. As a PhD student at Stanford University, Richard helped create the ImageNet dataset and also founded the startup Metamind. Recently, Richard left Salesforce to create his own startup, SUSE, which is on a mission to build better internet using the latest NLP and AI technology. I'm excited to talk to him about all these things today. I was curious how you got inspired by this AI Economist um, paper and project. I mean, I was trying to read it and I'm I'm not an economist, so I had a whole bunch of basic questions that are probably pretty embarrassing. But um, when when did you learn so much about economics? And um, it's such an interesting idea. Like, I guess maybe you should probably summarize um, the paper first, for those who haven't read it, and then talk about how you got interested in it.
0: Happy to, yeah. So AI Economist is essentially a framework. Uh, it's more than just a single model or something. It's a whole framework that uh, tries to model an economy uh, in its sort of most simple forms for now, uh, though it'll get more realistic, I think, in in the next months and years to come. Uh, And then inside that uh, economic simulation, you have a two-level reinforcement learning setup where you have an AI economist that basically can set taxes and subsidies and uh, other kinds of financial uh, instruments uh, in order to optimize an overall objective for the economy, namely, in our case, productivity times equality. Uh, where equality is men, uh, measured as uh, sort of a one minus Gini index, which is a measure of uh, equality that's used worldwide. Mm-hmm. And productivity makes sense in terms of how much does do all the single agents in the, uh, in the simulation make. And each single agent is also a reinforcement learning agent, uh, but their goals are just to maximize uh, their own objectives, which is to maximize their own income and wealth. And, uh, you know, is that... 100% realistic, of course not. Uh, also in the simulation, there's mostly just three different types of resources, wood and stone and space uh, in some ways. And then uh, agents walk around in this uh, 2D world, grid world. They can build houses. They can block other agents by building these houses. And they can trade resources as well to try. You know, if you need certain more wood to build the house, but you have plenty of stone. You can trade it and so on. So it's sort of the the some of the fundamentals. Uh, also, you have utility curves, which is quite common. In uh, economic modeling that you wouldn't have in a game, what does a utility curve do? It tells you, for instance, uh, that after a certain amount of work, you have diminishing returns. Like You could work seven days a week, but most people at some point want to actually take some time off and not spend all their time just to minimize another uh, little bit uh, of money. And so... Mm-hmm. So, you know, that and a couple of other things make it quite different to playing just a game. We thought about this, too. Could we just use Civilization or Age of Empires or some of these things? But we wanted to, one, steer away from just zero-sum war games where you train the AI to just get really, really good at fighting each other. uh, And instead, try to think of a system to try to uh, have an overall improvement uh, for the world so that if that system actually gets deployed... It would have as is a positive impact versus, oh, we used it to develop interesting technology that eventually maybe will have this positive impact. And uh, so that's that's kind of what AI Economist is. And what's interesting technically uh, and and hard about it is that with this two level reinforcement learning, you essentially the AI Economist keeps changing the goalposts for all the RL agents. And they say, oh, I found this great strategy. I'm going to you know, sell this, uh, trade this, uh, like collect this resource and build houses in this way to block off some other person. And then uh, all of a sudden the economist changes it because they realize like, you have a monopoly and equality is suffering. And maybe you're going to tax the person with the monopoly a little bit higher who blocked all the resources away from the other agents. And now all of a sudden the agents have to adapt too. And in almost all RL before, you have a fixed objective function. You know, like, just this, this is what you need to fit. Like, this is how you win Go. This is how you win chess. This is how you win Atari games and so on. They don't change. Uh, and here, the goalpost keeps changing. So it is a really hard, interesting optimization problem. So so that's kind of what AI economists is. Now, how did we get to that idea? Uh, it actually came from a couple of different uh, strains. My, my, the first time I had this idea was during my PhD, where I had this idea of and essentially all these different cultures in the world uh, have had... Uh, there are different energy landscapes on their optimization strategy. And a lot of them are trying to optimize roughly similar things. You would hope, you know, people want to prosper, uh, people want to have certain uh, amenities and freedoms and and, and so on. Uh, but they all end up in their different local optima. And I thought about this as like this non-convex objective function that different cultures go in and try to optimize it and end up in all these different local optima. And, and so that was kind of idea, but I didn't quite know how to Structured as like an AI problem. I just had some sort of quick little notes and I drew some objective function and I kind of just carded it and I continued to do NLP research. And then uh, we hired Stefan Cheng, the first author of the AI Economist. And uh, we've also had uh, Alex Trott in the team already for a year. And with him, we were working on trying to build uh, houses just from like lots of bricks. You collect resources and you have a 3D agent, in like something like Minecraft, that tries to build a house. And that house building turned out to be pretty complicated. But the goal of that house building project was to eventually have multiple agents and a whole island and and like the whole thing. And then we realized, man, we could spend another two years or so or three years just trying to build the houses properly before we could get to that AI economist. So I thought... Stefan, like, hey, why don't we just go directly, assume the house building is just one action, built the house in this location, that's it, rather than all the different 3D structures and so on, and finding out what is a good structure for a house. Just one click, and then eventually maybe we can merge the two projects. Uh, but then, yeah, Stefan actually did a phenomenal job deepening uh, it, our understanding of, of the literature and economics and reached out to other economists. That's how we worked with David Parks in the end from Harvard, uh, and and really fleshed out how to make it work in an RL framework and then getting all the technology, like the, the complex optimization going and so on. So I have to give a lot of credit to Stefan and Alex eventually said, you know, screw this simple house building. Why don't I like this is this is why I'm kind of wanted to do this anyway. And he's been interested in economics uh, for a long time, too. So the two of them kind of just jumped in on that project uh, and, and it became really, really great.
1: That's so cool. Was there debate over the? I mean, I thought there's actually a lot of kind of, um, could be a lot of debate in the objective function, right? You did the like economic growth times one minus the genie coefficient. Um, I mean, why not like economic growth like plus the one minus the genie? Or you know, I could think of many other ways to do it. Was that?
0: And so could we. And uh, and I think eventually you're gonna like it's. I love this project in that it literally covers the whole spectrum from like a hardcore optimization problem uh, that's really technical and sort of min-max and shifting objective function and energy landscapes and so on, all the way to the most philosophical civilization-level debates and questions of what we need to do uh, in the world and what is uh, economics and politics and, and what are we all optimizing and should it be equality? Like In some ways, you don't want the Gini Index to go all the way to its maximum either. Cause that means sort of there's absolutely everybody's forced to be hundred percent equal, which is questionable. Danger whether, that these days. <laughs> right. Which is uh, questionable in terms of monetary things. Of course we should all be right, equal right. Uh, in terms of rights and opportunities and, uh, and, and so on. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of financial equality, it's very important. Thanks for pointing it out. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I think actually this kind of work will help with that kind of equality because we can, push for that and improve it a lot? Does it mean we have to get to the maximum, right? Like maximum would be like infinite productivity and and nobody has any difference in the world. And I think we should also celebrate some types of differences. But I think economic inequality is in my eyes, the single biggest issue that we have in the world right now. A lot of issues fall from that. If, uh, if certain minorities would have more economic equality They would be better off, I think. We'd have less racism, less sexism if uh, people of color and women had uh, the same financial uh, equality uh, as men do, uh, statistically speaking. And so I think economic equality is a big part. Like a lot of wars get started from that, a lot of like, you know, genocides and so many other issues uh, happen from economic inequality um, that it's a really tough one. Now, should it only be productivity times equality? Maybe not. Maybe there should be other things like sustainability in there. So in the uh, simulation, you have trees, the trees will eventually regrow, but you can have sort of a uh, tragedy of the common situation where uh, all the agents just get rid of all the trees and then there are no more trees. Uh, and they all optimize their thing. Everybody's equal, but then like long term. Everybody will suffer because there will be stasis and and people won't build anything anymore, uh, and it'll flatline because they destroyed all their resources. So I think sustainability uh, is a reasonable one. And then there are interesting questions. You know, clearly utilitarianism isn't uh, isn't like a I think at least philosophically the only answer um, to this. Uh, so you may need to have other uh, like protections in the objective functions and sort of boundary conditions. You could, we could talk about just that for hours, probably, and over drinks uh, in an evening, we could really spend, um, yeah, a lot of fun, uh, sort of philosophy and ethics of what, what, uh, we should optimize. I think what I'm hoping to realistically though, is that, um, when a politician in the future would say, I want to help the middle class that's that's one of my one of the things I want to do. And then eventually either you know right away during their campaign or later on they propose to say now this is what I'm going to do to do this. And then you run that setup through the simulation and you say that is really different from any of the potential solutions that the simulation would get for helping the middle class. Why aren't you why does yours differ so far? Why what's your thinking about that will actually help more than these other ways? And so hopefully we can agree more easily on the objective function, and then we can disagree less on how to exercise and how to get there.
1: In your simulation, was there any emergent behavior that surprised you? Like, is there anything kind of counterintuitive that you discovered from doing these experiments?
0: Yeah, there's definitely some things that at first you're like, wait, this doesn't make sense. So, we have taxes and we have subsidies, and when you look at it, it's actually the lowest income bracket got taxed a lot. And then it actually went down for uh, this sort of middle class of the simulation and we're like, wait a minute, that doesn't, that seems very counterintuitive, but it turned out they were also getting more subsidies. So they actually like, in it, it, it net net, they were actually much more positive um, because the subsidies were also given to, to that income bracket. Um, but that at first was kind of counterintuitive. But then once you double clicked on it and you realize, well, effectively, they're actually uh, getting more subsidies than they have to pay taxes. So it kind of leveled out and made more sense.
1: Interesting. And sorry, this is, a, I guess this may be a personal question, but you grew up in Eastern Germany, didn't you?
0: I did for a couple of years, is Ethiopia that, you that for, a... Ethiopia for Eastern... three years and, uh, four years or so of, uh, East Germany and, uh, and then Germany re- reunited. Yeah. I see.
1: Do, do you feel like that gives you a different perspective maybe than Americans on, on these topics?
0: I mean, you know, I think I was, I was still pretty young when, uh, when the Berlin Wall came down. And so uh, I think, though, culturally, of course, East Germany still had, you know, it wasn't like Germany reunited and then there's, like, no more differences between East and West. In fact, some of the uh, issues you see in other countries, like, you would see between East and West, like, the East still has lower uh, income compared to the West, and uh, a lot of uh, women actually left um, Eastern East Germany to go to the West. So there, there are a couple of counties that have, like, too many men, um, and so on. So there, there's still a lot of differences uh, between the East and West uh, still to this day. Um, but I think, uh, you know, sort of growing up in Germany overall, which is where, I, you know, the time I got most of my education was in reunited Germany, um, uh, probably did affect me. Like in general, as I grew up, it was a, like free healthcare and free education all the way down to or up to a um, PhD level, master's level was just, not ever a politicized question. It was just a given. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, being sort of anti big military intervention was something that was still pretty deeply ingrained in Germans having, you know, been there twice uh, for a century. Uh, it, it was clear that that's something we should all try to ed- as best as we can to avoid. So uh, there's a lot less sort of uh, pro-military Uh, conversations going on uh, in Germany. Uh, And so, yeah, so it's kind of interesting. The whole political discourse in Germany has kind of shifted. Even the most sort of uh, liberal, pro-economy, pro um, sort of uh, companies, types of parties, and uh, on the political spectrum, none of them would ever uh, question free healthcare or free education. Because Statistically speaking, it just helps everyone, and it's kind of an interesting definition of freedom. Even, you know, is it more free that you always have healthcare no matter what job you have, or is it less free because you have to pay for it? Like, it's interesting, uh, interesting cultural differences. So that definitely had a little bit of an impact. Yeah.
1: Got it. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I guess I, I also want to make sure we cover some of the other papers that, since I have you, I'm just like. I have so many questions. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could talk about. Um, we've actually been, you know, my company has been working with a lot of people doing various aspects of kind of protein um, generation and folding, and and um, I I really feel like there's something going on in um, ML right now with with all the applications, and it's something I, I know very little about because it was didn't feel like a topic when I was in school. Um, I'd love to just, if you could just describe, I mean, it's such an intriguing idea that language modeling techniques could be used for um, protein generation. Maybe you could just tell us what you did and kind of what you think about the field in general.
0: Sure. Yeah. So uh, generally high level protein uh, generation or the progen model that we published is a language model. What's a language model? It's basically just trying to predict the next word in a large unsupervised text. So you take all of Wikipedia, all of... Uh, you know, as much of the internet text as you can. And some people innovated by taking Reddit uh, data, which is kind of more interesting, but then also has issues with bias and so on. Um, And you have a very simple objective function for a large neural network architecture, which is just try to predict what the next word is. And people have been doing that for many, many years, almost many decades, uh, because it's a very helpful way to disambiguate uh, words that sound the same, but actually are written and mean something different. So if I want to say the price of wood versus would you tell me something, then the wood sounds the same in both sentences, but one it's the wood of trees and one it's the auxiliary verb, and so you basically want to disambiguate like which one is more likely in that context and so uh, that was used for speech recognition and still is in a lot of speech recognition models for translation, you know you can try to generate a bunch of possible translations for you know a German to English translation, but then try to uh, identify. Which sentences are the most fluid, uh, uh, fluent, fluent uh, sort of for uh, the English language, and so the sort of interesting novelty that came out uh, recently with uh, with GPT and OpenAI is to actually take these existing models, make them even bigger, and then not just look at the perplexity numbers going lower and lower. Perplexity is essentially sort of an inverse metric of uh, the probability that you assign to each word. So the less perplexed you are, uh, the more uh, correctly you've assigned probability mass to the word that actually comes next. Uh, And so as the perplexity reduced more and more, it crossed a threshold and uh, OpenAI was, was clever enough to realize the threshold is so low now we should really look at what they're generating and, and see what, what comes out. And, and it turned out that they're actually surprisingly good, better than most anybody in the field had thought five, 10 years ago uh, in generating, fluid, like or fluent paragraphs that, that actually made sense, that had some coherence and flow to them. Uh, and, you know, of course, after one or two paragraphs, they will repeat themselves and uh, won't make that much sense still because they don't have, this is, I think, actually an interesting question for the future. What's the next objective function? Like just producing the next word uh, and generating the next word isn't going, that doesn't uh, include the fact that usually when you try to say stuff, you have a goal in mind. To convince somebody of something, to learn something, to like get a message across, to get somebody to do something, all these different goals that you have as you try to use language, that I think will be the next level uh, of AI research uh, to identify and understand new objective functions in general, and it'll actually allow AI to come up with its own objective function. But that's, anyway, so Back to Progen. So we have... Um, this is fun. This is like, usually I don't have that technical of an audience to geek out <laughs> about these things. It's just like, I have to stay a lot more high level and, uh, for most most other interviews. And so um, what's what's cool about Progen is we took this idea of predicting the next word, which for languages makes sense. Humans can do it, but humans can't actually do it for proteins. We're not built to look at, you know, the, uh, like a bunch of different amino acids and protein sequences and then try to learn what they would look like, what would come next. And, uh, and so... I love the fact that when you develop really novel AI techniques that you can apply it to so many different areas. And, and I still think that sort of one of the most exciting things is if you find a new model family and then you apply it to all these different things and you show, and eventually you have a multitask model that can do multiple different things. And so here, uh, it made sense to us because again, it's a, it's a language, um, that, uh, has a meaning, we just have much harder way of accessing that meaning. And we have a ton of training data uh, now that sequencing is getting cheaper and cheaper. There's also an interesting sort of learning about you know you the first time somebody got sequenced, it was incredibly expensive, and that was like a white man. and now like you can for a hundred bucks, anybody can sequence uh, sequence the technology. So that's actually a great uh, great story for for technology. So long story short, we predict uh, each new protein one at a time uh and mm-hmm. then we can uh generate new proteins and so what does that mean what why would that be useful for people not familiar with proteins everything in life uh is governed by proteins every function in your body is governed by proteins deep down and you know the level below cells and everything it's all guided by proteins and so the digestive system even you can you could develop proteins that will fight certain types of cancer uh, certain types of viruses. Uh, it's actually something we're also working on now to try to do some interesting things for curing certain kinds of viruses, but it's too early to talk about it right now. It will take some time. It's kind of a, another moonshot. Um, but there's a really exciting work that you could do. You can even develop proteins that will eat plastic to try to help with you know pollution. Like This is unlimited, uh, the kinds of stuff you could do with proteins, if you understood that language well. And so one big like important factor for this protein model was that it's also a controllable language model that it has these control codes in the beginning because you don't want it to just sort of randomly generate random proteins you have an actual goal in mind like oh this should bind to this binding site in a cell or this should you know try to be able to connect to like a plastic or the all these different kinds of things you could do um and so we have these control codes they basically give you the function and which area of the body and things like that uh, it's in, or what other binding sites it should have, and then it will actually generate uh, reasonable proteins. And uh, Ali uh, on our team uh, has just been doing a phenomenal job pushing that line of research, and he's also the first author of ProGen.
1: Cool so I mean, how did you get the training data for that? Like I could see how you could get like protein data from DNA, but how did you get the data of like what these proteins do and things like that?
0: so we we took a subset of of data and that had some kind of uh, meta data associated with them. And what's interesting is there uh, you actually uh, can look at uh, a lot more training data once you just say, "Look, any control code goes. It just goes in here, and then we can also use that the majority of data sets are still very um, un, uh, unstructured slash there's, there's no good um, sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, documentation uh, and coherence between these different data sets. Each different data set, you know, the proteins have different links. And then some people say, oh, it has like these three functions. And other people say, well, I just got this from somewhere. The next level is actually to try to train it even if you have zero metadata associated with them, there are some interesting uh, uh, meta uh, studies that just have a lot of unsupervised sequences from like soil and all kinds of things. And so uh, if you could learn from unsupervised sequences, you could train on even more. But for now, we just took data sets that had at least some kind of metadata associated with it, even if there's no general nice um, you know sort of image image net like taxonomy or wordnet like taxonomy for them but any kind of metadata was enough for us to incorporate the data into the model
1: and was this the same with like gpt where it's just like predicting the next one and you're just trying to like have the lowest perplexity or like the the highest probability
0: that that's correct that's right it's a guess. super simple objective function still uh, and it's just trying to predict what's the next one and what's amazing is actually that we uh, and we just released this on Twitter today uh, and on the blog post. Uh, we, we analyzed it and some super fascinating stuff. So there's sort of uh, protein folding, which is computationally really expensive, is a really hard problem. But what we found is that even though the model goes through sequences, you know, just one at a time, uh, you can visualize the attention mechanism inside these transformer networks and the, trend, the, the attention mechanisms actually have a very high correlation to folding patterns in 3D. So oh, wow. the areas of the protein, when they fold around and they, they actually uh-huh. are close to another area, and they would often uh-huh. uh, fold in a way that they're very close, and then also different binding sites and so on, they're highly, highly correlated with transformer attention. So there's I think there's a lot more there to, to find out and, and explore.
1: And did the like were the same mechanisms like attention that make language models work well, was it the same things that really mattered for the the protein prediction, or was there any difference in the the kinds of models that work?
0: So to be honest, these models are so large, and we don't want to burn through like hundred million dollars to train ten of them. Uh, we just trained like a tiny samples uh, of of a transformer, and then we trained very very few one or two the like of the one point seven billion parameter with two hundred thirty billion uh, or yeah. Seventeen billion or so uh, uh, protein sequences.
1: I see. I see.
0: So yeah, do we don't even... have a huge table. we like,
1: <laughs> we spend a hundred
0: million dollars on not one piece of paper that gives all the different numbers on a big table. These models are so large; you really better not have a bug in that in the beginning, and then realize it right, months right. later.
1: <laughs> but I guess do these larger models work significantly better than like simpler models?
0: For sure. Yeah, this is really where neural networks shine. They have so much more expressive power they can capture so many more different uh non-convex highly uh complex functions that uh you you need that i think this is sort of where you couldn't do this thing with a linear linear model like the world is not linear if you know uh, it'd be a lot easier to solve all kinds of uh, issues in medicine and so on if everything was like some nice convex problem in biology but it's it's far from that so we really need the complexity of these very large models
1: do you have like any way to, like, I feel like that, I feel like GPT-2, one of the coolest things about it was it produced these sentences where they're so evocative and you kind of the sense of like, okay, this thing is not good at long range dependencies, but the it's very fluent, you know, like, is there any, like, could a scientist look at the proteins you generate and have some sense of like, like these seem fairly realistic or is there any way to measure that?
0: It's super fascinating, right? Like what is the... Um, what is the energy landscape uh, in this discrete, you know, protein space that actually makes sense uh, when you look at, so biologists already do this. Like two years ago, I think the the, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was given to uh, a team that essentially randomly modified existing protein sequences and then just tested them out. You can synthesize them and see if they actually have certain properties. Like you can try to make them fluorescent or not. And then see like, how many proteins can I randomly change to still have that, that property or have even more of that property, which could be useful for, for drugs and, and drug development and, and so on? And so uh, they, you, you don't want to steer usually too far away from it. And then there are a couple of different metrics you can look at uh, of like as you generated a new type of protein that doesn't yet exist in nature, uh, how likely would that to be structurally sound at all? so uh and and we actually in the paper, we have different uh, experiments where we show that there's a certain energy that like with programs that you can cube, compute can compute uh, that says like this would actually have a very low or very high energy, and hence uh, this protein would not just disintegrate and fall apart, it would actually be structurally sound and it turns out that compared to you know the random baseline, which is relatively easy to beat, uh we're so much more so much better uh, and create much more stable proteins. That are more likely to actually work.
1: That's so cool. Um, all right, I'm going to keep jumping around because I have so many questions I want to get through. But um, I'd love to hear about um, the the language model that you came out with last year, the CTRL, and like kind of what inspired you to make a new language model, and like kind of what it does like differently than than other options out there.
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So control um, is essentially a controllable language model, where instead of just saying here's a beginning sentence, now just spitball like randomly generate like how that could continue uh usually it would make more sense for us to try to create language technology that we have a little bit more control over so we created these control codes uh that essentially say for this sequence but also given this genre like continue the sentence so if you start with a knife and you say the genre is a horror movie then like the knife peeked through the door and la 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 crazy stuff is happening but if you say a knife and a a review story then it's like oh the knife cuts really well my vegetables my husband loves using it in the kitchen and blah 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 so uh that's kind of a difference you have more control over what it would actually generate and then uh the control codes can also be used as task codes and you can say the task code uh, or control code is generate this translation of this and then it sort of generates the translated sentence after instead of uh, just sort of the next random possible sentences that might make some sense. And so uh, at, at that point, and this has been something I've been trying to work on for, for a long time with DECA, the natural language processing decathlon, DECA NLP, and a lot of other projects is I think we're at that state now in NLP where we can try to just solve a lot of these standard NLP problems by with uh, having a single large multitask model that. You have the substrate, a large complex neural network structure. It almost doesn't matter anymore these days what it is. Like You could probably have a very deep, a large stack LSTM. Now it would be a transformer. We'll probably come up with other versions of that, but it's some kind of large general function approximator, some neural substrate. Uh, and then the novelty is you try to train it to have all these different objective functions, different tasks. It gets better over time. And then you can get to transfer learning tasks. You can get to... Um, zero-shot abilities, and so on. So that's been a dream of uh, our first uh, line of that work with uh, Brian McCann on uh, contextual vectors Cove, uh, which we trained back then still with translation. Then Elmo took that idea and replaced translation with language modeling, which is even more clever because you have even more data uh, that's unsupervised than you have with translation, even though that's sort of the biggest supervised data set like ImageNet. Uh, And then Elmo, of course, became BERT, uh, with even more novelties uh, on top of it, and but still sticking to language models and taking these contextual vector, vectors. And so when you have contextual vectors that can get uh, easily fine-tuned on multiple tasks, then you have something like Deca NLP, where you have everything as described as one task, then you get closer and closer to that step to eventually just having a single model for all of NLP. And then my hope is that eventually the NLP community can work in a agglomerative a kind of cumulative way where we have a control-like language model or question answering model that you can ask any kind of question um, and so on. Or you can even have just a uh, general language model, but you ask it questions and then outcomes, You know, the next words that come after the question should be the answer if it really learned something about language and the world and everything. So uh, there are these equivalent super tasks of NLP. But long story short, is if we if we're able to do that, and every research that we do actually makes an assisting supermodel better and better, then we would all of a sudden have an explosion, I think, in progress in natural language processing, and we would stop saying, "Oh yes, this person, this paper has a baseline, and we're making it a little bit better." And then the next paper, we jump back to the baseline, and we make it a little bit better in a different direction. The next time, we again we keep sort of we up we improve our baselines from time to time but all these papers do sort of one-offs improvements of these baselines versus every time somebody publishes a good paper the model overall gets better and then everybody will start directly from that improved model so that's been my my dream for for the NLP uh, field for a while
1: it does kind of seem like NLP is moving in that direction doesn't it with like the the big like multitask uh baselines
0: that's right. And T5 and, and, and all these other large models. Uh, I'm super excited to see it. I think it's, it's finally happening. It'll still take some time because just like in, uh, about 10 years ago, I had uh, uh, my first uh, deep learning NL, like neural network paper at an NLP conference. And the, the reviewers still wanted to reject it. Or a lot of people like, why are you applying neural networks to NLP? That stuff from the 90s, it doesn't work here. And I had like in the beginning of my PhD, a lot of papers rejected. And I think part of it is that a lot of people have built their careers uh, and their knowledge uh, and their academic standing and so on on feature engineering. And so when you say, oh, you don't need to do feature engineering anymore, you just now have these models and they learn the features, it doesn't sound that great if you've done feature engineering for 10 years. And now we have the last 10 years or so uh, of people doing architecture engineering. And they don't want to hear that the architecture doesn't quite matter anymore. It's now about the objective functions. And so let's ignore all these architecture engineering papers. Let's just assume there's one very large, efficiently trainable neural network architecture, Um, probably a transformer because it's paralyzable on GPUs nowadays, Um, but it could be LSTMs, uh, whatever. Um, And we train this really large one. And now we become clever about the objective functions uh, on improving that neural substrate Again, it will be a, a shift, and it usually takes the community uh, a couple of years to, to make these shifts, and young people are jumping on it, and then you know, people that are older and longer, have been longer in the field, will eventually, kind of through their grad students and so on, adjust and then uh, embrace it, and then start doing amazing work in that new area.
1: So how does Control fit into that? So is that like, it sounds to me like, w- was that a new architecture, or was that really just adding Control codes? Was it it was mostly like special... adding Control
0: codes to a large language model. Uh, and that was mm-hmm. kind of the main, uh, main idea. And it, it fits into this as a way to unify. Basically, the way I see it is there are three equivalent super tasks of NLP. Dialogue systems, language models, and question answering systems. You can cast every other NLP problem into any of those three, and you can map those three between one another, right? Like in a dialogue, something happens, and then you have to generate the answer to what the previous uh, agent just said. And in language modeling, you know, you can also cast it as question answering by right? like asking a question and then the words that should be predicted after that question uh, should be the answer. So question answering and language modeling are equivalent. So we tried this with DECA NLP uh, where we had uh, language modeling, uh, sorry, where we used question answering as that default framework. And with control, it's the acknowledgement that uh, if you start with a large substrate that can be trained unsupervised from a large amount of text, it's a much it's like sort of the best single task to then transfer from and do multitask learning from
1: and do you treat the control codes like differently than other like um tokens because I feel like I see a lot of like examples where people you know like they do a translation by just showing pairs and then it's like, oh, their language model just starts generating um pairs is is that the same thing or is it somehow um control doing things more? Systematically.
0: So you do have, you know, in some cases, you can actually make those control codes be language themselves, right? So you could say like, here's a question, now is a text, generate the answer after you read that whole thing. Uh, but mm-hmm. you can also have control codes that are just like task one, task underscore one is a control token. Right. And then it will, what's surprising is with these control tokens, the outputs will be very different, right? Like translation all of a sudden translating, like generating a very different output with the same neural network architecture overall that's it's pretty amazing that that works.
1: It's amazing that that works. I mean, I I can't believe that that works. A... <laughs> like I remember when I, when I was studying this stuff, it was like you know it was like linguists that wanted to do it completely explicitly and rule based versus like you know people doing machine learning. So I guess we sort of keep going up levels of abstractions.
0: You know what's interesting? I, I sometimes these rules I used to just so much discarded, but when you when you try to build a real system for a real company you have a chatbot. And uh, and that company has, in the end, like everything, if you have the ability to make it into chatbot, you have some API somewhere, right? Whether that API is like you click on these fields, or you already have it as a program, it needs to be a structured, uh, disambiguated programming language uh, output at some point that fulfills actions. Like what order do you want? We go into our order management system and upgrade you know this field and resend a new one that those get into some logistics center and so when you have these concrete chatbots for a company i was always thinking oh it should just all be learned and then at the very end it generates some code and so on but the truth is companies want to sometimes have control they want to say yeah maybe there was like bad biases in my past training data or maybe we changed the process and now We don't want to do it the way we used to do it. It's going to be a new process or like in this country, we have some regulations. So we need to first ask this other question that wasn't in the training data from that country and so on. So, man, I, uh, I'm surprised how often, uh, when it comes down to like real business and products, you have to still have these rules in there.
1: I'm curious, actually, so you've gone through this transition from like, um, Mainly academic to like startup founder to um you know, kind of like big company like you know C level executive. Has there been any other surprises like that? Like kind of seeing how businesses think about machine learning versus how academia thinks about it.
0: Yeah, one thing I love is that I actually I still dabble a little bit in all the other ones. Um, and you know, obviously, we're still doing fundamental research now, but also of a lot course, more yeah. product and stuff. But um, the there there are a lot of interesting different mindsets. You know, in in many ways. If you have a domain problem, this is actually something you see even in research. If you work in just biology or you're just trying to solve one particular domain problem in a particular modality like language or vision, then it's rare. It's really hard for the people doing working on those applications to also find out new architectures. Uh, it's just a different mindset. You're trying to solve the problem. Like If you try to, for instance, help uh, babies in the ICU or you try to like cure uh, COVID or something, you don't care if if you can do it with naive base or an SVM or some like latent Dirichlet allocation or whatever the hot like model used to be the, the popular model at the time, it doesn't really matter. You solve, you know, like cancer or some like, or specific type of sub cancer. Uh, and so it's interesting. You're just starting to throw the kitchen sink at, at applied problems. And that's sort of still true even, uh, for applied engineering teams. They say, you know, by the end of this quarter and this sprint planning and so on, you got you to gotta have a solution that works at some, on some level, uh, whether it's like the absolute latest greatest and like really squeezes out those 2% that depends on the business model. Like for Google, it makes sense to spend a lot of time on AI because they have clearly certain AI metrics like recommender systems for advertisement and so on where an improvement in an AI metric results in immediately more revenue. That isn't the case for, for every AI uh, problem and solution and product out there In the B2B world, sometimes it's just like if it kind of works, you make the same amount of money than if it works 5% better.
1: What are the things that Salesforce cares about? Like, what are the ML applications that are really important inside of your company?
0: So, there are a ton. They're like, they're roughly different groups, uh, such as like sort of packaged applications that um, you can sell as is, like a chatbot application or opportunity or lead scoring. Uh, some of these sometimes become go into a second category, which is sort of quality of life and the user experience, where you just kind of make the product a little bit better. And we have a lot of those.
1: Wait, sorry, what would that be like? Like make the product a little better? Like, so, like
0: for instance, you type in the name of a company to create a new lead uh, lead object uh, as a salesperson, oh, and it just like finds the company logo, just like boom, right. and now like it looks better in a nice table. This is like not a feature you could get totally. money for. Or <laughs> the search functionality. Search is like one of the most used features in most uh you know cm software uh but making search like like spending another billion dollars on improving search is like questionable like cuz you make the same amount of money everybody assumes well, your searches just kind of work uh and you don't pay extra for it for the most part mm-hmm. um, and so uh then yeah so you have packaged applications where you clearly make a lot more money like a recommendation engine in commerce about we're one of the largest e-commerce platforms in the united states uh which many people don't know because nobody goes to salesforce.com to buy their shoes but you go to adidas.com which runs on salesforce uh I see, and I see. so uh there you have recommendation engines as uh, so clearly like uh, sort of almost an obvious kind of task everybody knows you should use recommender recommendation engines uh in e-commerce uh then but those are sort of packaged applications that you can sell as is then you have these quality of life features you have things like you want to improve your operational efficiency, like make recommendations for your own salespeople or uh, learn how to work with your data centers more efficiently and things like that. Um, and then you have, uh, we have in the company also a lot of platforms. So, where we enable our hundreds of thousands of customers to build their own AI applications with their own data without us interfering. Uh, and so, there you also have interesting problems because you have to not just build one app, but you have to build an engine such that a lot of admins and uh, with low or no code, you can create an AI application, some prediction model, some recommendation model, some OCR model to read in forms uh, from some complex form, boom, directly into digital form, which is surprisingly still necessary uh, a lot of times these days. So uh, there's so many different applications. Uh, That's kind of why it's so exciting here.
1: How do you even like in your team, how do you pick what to work on
0: uh it's a, Is a complex it process driven by research interests <laughs>
1: um so
0: so i have I, i'm wearing these different hats and so on the research side we go mostly for impact on uh the ai community as a whole and uh, <laughs> then so that's one of our objective functions just impact in ai research another one could be impact down the line eventually on uh products uh, so you know we have uh, things that we work on in medicine where we don't currently work in medicine, but maybe down the line that could be used. Um, we have things uh, that we work on in the AI Economist uh, or Progen where maybe eventually the world will improve, and but it's not really clear. So there's there's sort of pure AI research impact on the world and, and all our stakeholders in the community and so on. Uh, then on real products, uh, so a lot of natural language processing research is surprisingly close, like you can do some fundamental research in semantic parsing, uh, mm-hmm. learning how to really disambiguate a sentence into a query that could be used to, to get the answer from a database. And mm-hmm. that is fundamental research, but it's also pretty applied and could be used for Tableau uh, and a lot of other exciting uh, areas inside the CRM where people need to find answers in the database. So, so that is kind of the, the two different worlds on the research side. And then on the product side. Uh, and and the, the large engineering groups, uh, it's uh, very customer driven. And sometimes it's driven by what we think the future will be like. So we re- uh, announced, for instance, at Dreamforce last year, a first uh, agent over the phone. So like a converse a kind of agent that you can just pick up the phone and have a natural conversation with. Uh, so Mark and I were, were on the keynote stage and showing sort of what that would look like. And so that is obviously something that maybe customers aren't even... Thinking yet about? They're like because they're not sure it's even possible. But we're working on those kinds of things because we think it will be possible soon. And and we're now you know yeah, making it possible.
1: Cool. All right. Well, we're running out of time. We always end with two questions um, that um, I didn't warn you about, but I'm kind of curious what you'll say. So, uh, (laughs) so the first question is um, like, what's something an aspect of machine learning that you think practitioners are not paying enough attention to?
0: I think now that AI has reached that, uh, deep impact level on the world, we really need to think about the biases in a holistic way, like the systems, the people, uh, the, the structures, uh, that, that are using AI for something. Uh, are we, are we thinking enough about the bias and, uh, as AI has a bigger and bigger impact on people's lives, uh, I think the, the bar needs to increase more and more, like a loan application uh, AI that decides who should be able to start a business and so on. You really need to pay a lot of attention to the biases in the data sets, the biases of how those data sets are created by the people, uh, the sort of hidden agendas uh, and what the status quo is and and, uh, and so on. And how do you how do you improve um how do you improve the world in the end uh, versus uh, entrenching it in, in the current system uh, and, and just keeping the current system uh, the way it is. And I think that's that's sort of something that a lot of practitioners still need to work on. Uh, and now also more researchers need to work on. Because uh, even when we play around with like, oh, it's just a cute little artsy research project, right? This depixelization, it actually is, like it turns out, it's like another deeply rooted uh, bias uh, that is there and that gets exposed in that. And that I think we should all work on. Do
1: you have any suggested um, like reading material or or for people who want to get more educated on the topic where you'd point them?
0: Yeah, for sure. I think, I think uh, Timnit Gebru right now is uh, really one of the leaders in that area. And she, she has given this great tutorial at CBPR and the slides are online. There are a bunch of papers uh, from a lot of other people um, at our team, we also have uh, Kathy Baxter, and she sort of looked at uh, more of the applied side of AI a lot more, making sure that AI systems are uh, explainable, uh, transparent, that you have feedback loops in them, that people can give uh, like feedback to when an important decision about them was made in an automated fashion. They think it's wrong that they're able to fix it uh, and, and sort of ex- escalate it to humans or, or improve that uh, data um, making sure they're explainable, you actually understand how it came about that this decision was made about you and so on. So there are a couple of different uh, things like making sure even sounds kind of crazy, but I think we need to even think about human rights uh, when it comes to AI applications uh, that we work on. And so, so I think uh, Kathy Baxter has a lot of materials online, interviews and, and materials. We have some trailheads also on Salesforce, the, the Salesforce learning platform. Uh, on ethics and ethics in AI in particular, and then Tim Gabriel has a lot of great uh, materials on uh, research uh, in AI and the systemic issues as well as sort of other concrete issues.
1: Cool. yeah, we'll we'll put this in the in the notes and and totally agree. Um, the uh, the final question, um, so you're coming from kind of a research perspective, but you're at a company that does lots of applied machine learning. Um, when you look at that path from like taking like a research thing to, you know, deployed inside the Salesforce product, what's like the biggest challenge that you see in that process? Like where do things get bogged down the most?
0: Boy, um, it's interesting. We have actually, I feel like we're, we're finally really getting into a groove and we're getting a lot of features out much, much more quickly than we used to. And uh, I think part of it is just that the two different sides of like the pure researchers slash research engineers slash data scientists slash sort of data engineers um, they have a certain way they see of where's the complexity of deploying an actual AI product. And then you have engineers, and the, the the truth is, though, that somewhere between 5 to 20% of an AI product is actual AI. And then somewhere between 95 to 80% is just relatively standard but still very hard software engineering. And, you know, like, everybody can nowadays quickly hack together a quick, like... Um, uh, TensorFlow image classifier, right? It's like, oh, and you feel like after 10 minutes, you're an AI expert and so cool and, uh, and and you're super smart and you know AI now and so on. But then when you actually want to deploy that in a large context, now you have load balancing, you have security, you have privacy and, and you have all these issues. Now somebody from uh, GDPR from Europe says, I want you to delete this picture. Now you need to retrain it. If that happens every day, are you retraining a whole huge model every day? Because somebody you're asking, to take that training that their data out of the thing that eventually fed in your classifier how do you update the classifier continuously how do you make sure that as you update the classifier if you've had something like FDA approval or HIPAA compliance how do you make sure that like the new classifier is still compliant with all the various regulations you have so there's so much complexity on the engineering and productionizing of AI and and that is sort of what a lot of uh, people who are super deep uh, AI experts often underestimate
1: Cool. Well, great answer. And, and great talking to you, Richard. Thank you so much for doing this.
0: Pleasure. Uh, great questions. Yeah. It was super fun <laughs> to geek out a little bit and and go deep into some of these papers.
1: Totally. Yeah. Thanks so much. When we first started making these videos, we didn't know if anyone would be interested or, or want to see them, but we made them for fun. And we started off by making videos that would teach people. And now we get these great interviews with real industry practitioners and I love making this available to the whole world so everyone can watch these things for free. The more feedback you give us, the better stuff we can produce. So please subscribe, leave a comment, engage with us. We really appreciate it.